All right, what's up, everybody? It's your host, Nelson Santiago. Homies are lit. I got Randy here with me, and we have ourselves a very special guest today, Sandra Cisneros from House on Mango Street, from um, the story we talked about in our very first episode. Today, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that conversation um, and in a segment we like to call Author's Insights. So from here, I'll let Randy jump in and lead the way. Hi, what's up, everybody? This is your co-host, Randy. Welcome to a special episode of Homies Lit, where, as Nelson stated, we have the author of our first episode, which, of course, you have. if you haven't checked out, you should check out. Um, and we're kind of going to dive into a conversation where we both focus uh, deeper um, in certain themes of the book that we might not have been able to touch upon or that we didn't dive too deeply into because of time constraints but also kind of broaden it into the current national conversation um, surrounding things like Black Lives Matter, uh, recent decisions on DACA, and just what it means to be a Latinx artist um, in the United States today, and kind of the beauty of that, but also the complications that come with that identity. Um, So Sandra, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I am Sandra Cisneros, or Sandra Cisneros, And I am speaking to you from my home in San Miguel de Allende, uh, Mexico. Uh, One of my colleagues, Jason de Leon, uh, turned me on to Homies and Lit. And I was just completely, completely blown away. I thought, wow, this is the podcast I've been waiting for. Uh, because, you know, I remember when my book came out, you know, men would always say, Sandra, why you, why you got to talk so bad about the guys? And I would say, that's the stories I'm seeing. I got to, I'm sorry, I got to write the stories I'm witnessing. And, you know, I didn't really get anything except a rage from the guys. So I'm, I'm so um, astonished and honored to listen in to a conversation of two men from my community, from my city. And, you know, just a, uh, a gift to be able to eavesdrop. And so I begged, I asked my agent, can I get on that show? So I have to, a full disclosure, I invited myself on this show. And if you haven't heard uh, their original podcast, uh, please go there and listen to it. Uh, I wish that anyone who's teaching my book at any level, they should eavesdrop on that podcast. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, thank you for uh, showing so much enthusiasm for our podcast. So disclosure for me, I actually met Sandra Cisneros like very briefly for like three minutes at the University of Iowa back in 2017. Um, and we both kind of found out that we grew up down the block from each other uh, in the Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago, which was a bit of a revelation. It's one of those things where you don't, in a neighborhood like that, you don't see and meet a lot of people that have accomplish something as grand as becoming a best-selling author and an author that's taught in classrooms. And I mean, me and Nelson, we talked about it. We, I mean, I think I read The House on Mango Street three different times um, in school, but I never, the way it was instructed, I never really connected with the book and that I didn't feel like it focused on what was so central to us, right, as kids in what became a more violent in a city, but also a space where there was just, there was that sort of deep rooted um, discrimination that teachers didn't really understand because a lot of them were white teachers. And so they didn't, they didn't know how to market the book to us. And I think um, at least as a writer myself, trying to 
get my work out, it seems like a lot of places don't know how to market that. So I mean, we're incredibly honored to have you on the show, Malik, or sorry, my brother's middle name is Malik and I call him Malik. Uh, <laughs> is there anything you want to add before kind of segue into our conversation? Yeah. So, um, you know, Randy, like you said, he, he met her briefly. He's also a writer and he's, um, he's actually read it multiple different times. Um, you know, for listeners who, again, more like me on the side where you just didn't read it at all. Like there was nothing a teacher could have given me that I would have actually read. Um, you know, but if you listen to the podcast, uh, you, you understand my point of view on that. And I do really think Randy does have a good point and saying that, you know, it's not like marketed well to, to these, um, to us shit, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just not. And there's so much conversation around that book that me and Randy have had that's way outside the purview of the podcast in general. And that's just uh, the most important part of it all is that, you know, I feel like the biggest reason there's such a divide, I'm trying to think of the word here, the way they just push out that message to us, it just doesn't click with us. It doesn't resonate with us. Maybe, maybe you need to be teaching my book. Oh, uh, maybe I should. <laughs> maybe you already are. I think you are. I, I agree. I feel like we are kind of teaching Mango Street, you know, doing a new interpretation of the book. Yeah, talking about how why we chose this as a as a breakout episode, I think is a perfect example of that. I never had trouble actually reading, you know, I would read articles all the time, um, you know, because I was always studying up on stuff, whether it was like real estate or fitness, all kinds of things I was involved in. I just didn't care to read. And like, we'll use the word market, like you said, like, you know, when people talk to me about something, I want to be either entertained or I want to relate to it. Um, and I feel like I was in class and that shit was boring. Let's just start there. It was so monotone. Like, hey, open up this book, go to page so-and-so and read this many chapters when everyone's in silence, fucking staring at each other and the teacher's walking around like you're on, you know, like they're a prison guard, right? Um, and then I'm a firm believer in never having a conversation um, where I'm never leading a conversation if it's not something I know about personally, because I have no reason to be leading that conversation. I should be listening in on that conversation, right? So that goes back to where you're marketing it, right? It has to be relatable. If you can't relate to it, you probably shouldn't be trying to talk to people about it because you can't really sell somebody on something like that, right? And you shouldn't even be trying to sell them. But that's why I thought, you know what? We, we checked all the bases with, with House on Mango Street. It's really easy to consume, you know, even if you pace yourself really, really, really well, like just so you're not overwhelmed because maybe this is your first time, like just deciding to read anything. You know, it's my first time reading a book, but I read often, you know, like articles and stuff like that. So I don't have like that issue reading, but there's some people who didn't take, you know, who are still learning to read. Right. And it's a perfect, they're like bite-sized, you know, little, you know, little stories, vignettes, right? Which we explained what a vignette was in the episode. Yeah, I tried to write each one like a little pearl so that even if you didn't read what came before and after, if you were too busy or you just opened it up at random, you would get something out of it. Or you could read it from the beginning all the way to the end and all the stories would connect to make a bigger circle. That was my aim. And I didn't realize that there were other writers that were writing story cycles at that time. 
uh, you know, I, I would learn about those other books and read them after I wrote my book, like another Chicago book that I want to recommend to you and your listeners is the beautiful uh, book by my mentor, Gwendolyn Brooks, the Chicago poet, who wrote a novel called, called Maud Martha. And, you know, it's like people forget that she wrote this novel because she was a, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning poet. But uh, is that, I think I got the prize right. I hope I did. But at any rate, um, Maud Martha is a series of vignettes about the black community in the south side of Chicago. And if you read that, it's as relevant now as it was when she wrote it back in the 50s. So it's an extraordinary book. It's one of my favorite books. It's one I go back to a lot, one I keep close at hand because it's so exquisite and beautiful. And I wish I had known about it when I was going to school, but I wasn't taught it. I like, like you, a lot of books that came to me that mean a lot came after I left my education. And I think it's important to remember that Books are prescriptions, like, you know, prescription for something that ails you, like medicine. And sometimes uh, the, the books we're given, we don't have that ailment. You know, that's not our prescription. So sometimes you shouldn't feel bad. Like if it, a book doesn't take off for you, you just put it back. That's not your prescription. You don't have that illness. But when a book really uh, heals you and transforms you and makes you feel like singing, that's your book. And sometimes uh, the education system packages, or as you say, markets certain books that are going to speak to young people, but then maybe they're not going to speak to people of color. Maybe young people should have a choice of like what should be the required reading. Well, if you don't like this one, you can read that one. Because I, I hate telling people what my favorite books are without the uh, disclaimer. This is my prescription. And it might not work for you, but you could try it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Like I, especially studying, I mean, even you think, at least in my case, like being a first, my family to go to college, like you have all these notions of what college is going to be. And it seems, at least it's painted, especially for a lot of people of color and a lot of poor people, it's painted as this thing as like a great unifier, right? Like everyone's living in college dorms. No one's really poor anymore because, you know, you're all eating the same shitty food. But, you know, you slowly begin to realize that's not the case. And especially when you get into literature classrooms, you know, like you, in my case, I would, you know, speak to kids that already read Ovid. And, you know, I've read the Iliad like 10 times. And, you know, I'm like, I've never heard of these books. Like, and even then, like the only time I actually came into contact with a Latino author, which was once, um, was uh, Juno Diaz, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, um, was in a multicultural lit class. And then even then, again, it's kind of centered around this conversation of like, how do white people consume this book? Because I was the only non-white person in the class. So then you kind of, no matter how hard you try to steer the conversation in a direction and to your perspective, it always gets pushed aside. I feel like that class for me really illuminated. Um, and I took that class actually just before meeting you. Um, but it really illuminated for me um, just how much of a gap there is in not just the publishing of said books, because we know those books exist, right? That's what we're trying to illuminate. But like the accessibility of those books, like whether it be in the classrooms, at seminars, who they're bringing in to speak at these certain places. And that's why for us, um, 
the Mango Street resonated for the premise of the podcast is we had maybe like, well, a short list of like 13 books. And we just kept going back to Mango Street as being the first one because um, similar to what you said about Mog Martha, like it's still extremely relevant today, which is on the one hand beautiful, right? And that people can still relate to this. It's a timeless book. But on the other hand, it's, it's a bit demoralizing and that a lot of these struggles that have been faced, I mean, you wrote it, I think it was published about 84-ish, if, I, if my memory serves me right. Um, but that's when it was published. That's not when you'd experienced these things or seen these things. And then, what, 30, 40 years later, we're still having the exact same conversations. Like, it, it really showcases how one, progress is incredibly slow, but two, just how deep-rooted those oppressions are so i guess we can use that as a segue i had um reading in your introduction you mentioned you worked with um you worked with kids in chicago it sounded like a bit of an admin, uh, administrative role and you you mentioned how for you you really began to realize working with some of these students like seeing some of the challenges they had whether at home challenges in the streets challenges you know um just intellectual challenges um or learning disabilities in the classroom and you realized how even you coming from your background you did come from a point of privilege and for us reading the book we're like so many of these things like directly pertain to our lives like we've lived them and experienced them and we knew the book was set in chicago even though it never says that in the book but i i sort of wanted to know for you um one how much of the book was either lived experiences but also uh potentially experiences you kind of gleaned from either the students you interacted with kids in your neighborhood people in your neighborhood but also if you sort of because uh, the book definitely juggles power dynamics a lot like whether it be the transference of language there are a lot of situations where women are put in peril by men something that really stood out to me and even a situation where we kind of talk about the character of sally where she puts esperanza in perilous situations but she's sort of responding to the perilous situations that she was in so it's kind of this cycle and uh, one thing I thought of is similar to you saying, are we teaching Mango Street? I'm wondering if by writing Mango Street, your intention or maybe like an unintentional uh, consequence you know, you of it was to kind of reverse those power being structures. smarter than I really am. You have to remember, I was a high school teacher and I, later on I quit that job and became a university uh, counselor for uh, and the educational opportunity program that helped disadvantaged students come into the institution where I was working, my alma mater, Loyola University of Chicago. And, you know, so I had the same kinds of uh, students and same kinds of problems. But you have to remember that um, it's okay to be in a state where we feel frightened or impotent or lost. I really believe that spiritually that puts us in a place of having our hearts open and empathetic to others, and that's where I was in my 20s. I was lost. Uh, I went directly from the University of Iowa to teaching part-time in Pilsen at Latino Youth Alternative High School, which was a block away 
from um, what is now the National Museum of Mexican Art. And I just got, you know, such a wallop going from Iowa and discussing line breaks and then suddenly going to listen to these kids' stories of, you know, drugs and gang girl gangs and getting beat up and having yeah. their third kid before they're 18. You know, it was just like too much. And I feel, I feel that when we're in that state of feeling fearful or just feeling powerless, it gives us a, what I call a state of grace, you know, a state of when your heart is broken open and you're just feeling things so deeply. And I think that's where we are as a nation right now and as a global community. We're in that heartbroken, anxious, frightened, uh, impotent state uh, during everything that's been happening uh, recently reminds me of when I was in my 20s and feeling like, what good is, am I, why am I teaching them how to write poetry? You know, what, what am I doing teaching literature? Um, should I be teaching them more practical things like a birth control or how to fill out a birth, how to fill out a job application or, you know, just survival skills. It just, it made me question what is literature? Why is it important? And how can it save my students? And I feel like I was in some place of just having my heart cleft into and writing from that place. And I think we're, we're in that place again as a nation, as a community, as a uh, people of color, of feeling like we're, we've got the heart broken open. And that's a state of grace. And to me, it's right before uh, transformation. So we might not understand that we're in this spiritual state of grace, of working and receiving light and working from love. We might not recognize it as it's happening, but you will in retrospect. And for me, House on Mungo Street, while I was writing it, even after I published it, maybe till 15 years later did I understand the power of creating from your heart, creating anything, from your heart, anything that we create, whether it's raising a child or writing a book for those we love with no ego involved, no idea that I was gonna win any awards, make any money from it, none, none of that. It was just coming from puro amor. And I think the whole universe is fueled on that and energia. And so even though it, things look dark right now because we're frightened, we don't know what's going to happen with this virus, we don't know what's going to happen with our cities, with all the frustration we feel with the police and structures that we've inherited. But I still have a lot of hope because I know how San Mongo Street taught me uh, a law of the universe. And that is whatever we create with love on behalf of those we love with no personal agenda. Siempre sale bonito. I've said this before. It's always going to turn out. And sometimes it may be that in our lifetimes, you know, we don't see it right away. It takes some time. That's one thing that um, I feel that House has taught me and that I'm uh, intuiting for these, the time we're living in, which really is a sacred time, an exciting time if we see it from that light as a as a transition period and just think we're witnessing it in our lifetime. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on, I should say in the spotlight, right. Um, Cause there's always a lot going on. Right. And I just think, you know, it's, you can look at it one of two ways and the way I'm just choosing to look at it is that, you know, right now 
people are, are falling into their voices and that, you know, we're going to do what we're going to do with that. Right. Um, and we're just hoping that, you know, a lot of stuff's going to come out of this. A lot of people are experiencing their first, like, like large scale, like, you know, traumas in this sense, you know what I mean? Where some people are just fed up, like they're just tired of it. So, you know, some people are just getting broken into it and, and going through those motions. And some people are like, this is the end of the line for me. I've had enough. But at the end of the day, there's a lot to be said. There's a lot to be expressed in, in the future with, from this, from these moments. And I do think, um, that's another thing. I just feel like what my, my biggest, um, our biggest mine and Randy, after having a conversation to start homies lit is honestly just putting the spotlight on the voices that have already, you know, the people that have already spoken out, for example, just underrepresented literature, right. So that the people who want to talk and who want to find their voice and amplify it, well, that's what we're trying to be. You know, we're trying to be like a gigantic amplifier. And then just with the times, it's just, you know, sometimes you just do things and then the cards kind of line up. And that's what I mean. You know, we started this and we started this pretty much around the COVID thing. And it was not anything related to COVID. Like I said, I just kind of woke up and told Randy, hey, we should try and do this. And we're like, you know what? Yeah, we can. We should. And like that, we hopped on our phones and made Actually, that was the first episode. We made it on our phones, like no ah, software, nothing. Yeah. Cool. But just imagine if you and your brother were teaching House on Mongo Street in the barrio, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in New Jersey, any place you can think of that's very multicultural, and you were in the classroom. So if I'm going to invite teachers to bring this podcast into the classrooms because front and center of the page are the young people who are reading my book of color. They should be the ones saying, okay, Mr. and Miss, will you give me a, a, a session where I can share my viewpoints on what I think this book is about? And most of the time when we're in the classroom, we feel like we're not uh, smart enough, we're not good enough, we don't have enough education to have anything to say. That's how I spent a lot of my years in high school and in college, just hiding, thinking, oh, if I don't speak up, people will think I'm just as smart as them. Um, but we have this low self-esteem from where we come from. So I think this is a, a great thing you're doing, a, a creative thing. It's revolutionary. I love it. I've been waiting all these years to hear from people from the community teaching my book and even more mind blowing to hear it from the point of view of men. I think, um, I, I, that's another thing. I feel like, I think the podcast was the best way to do it because then it could just be an open conversation. Um, you know, I, I've attempted to start a blog like two or three times for other things I was doing. It's just not for me probably because I don't really, you know, sit down and, and I don't communicate that way, you know? Um, and also that being said, like, uh, if you guys listen to the episodes, every episode I pick, I pick a word that is like central to the conversation that I feel like maybe needs a little more, um, explaining so that I can explain to, um, the listeners who are like me, who just never really read or anything like that, because that's another thing that barrier to entry isn't as huge as people think, you know, it's just more of our insecurities. Like, you know what, I'm not going to understand it. So you're intimidated by books. You haven't had felt at home in a book. And one of the things I tried to do when I wrote House was I didn't want to intimidate anyone. I wanted everybody 
to feel like they were at home. I was thinking of like people who ride, who drive buses, like my, my cousin was a CTA bus driver. I said, I want people like that, you know, to be able to read it when they have a break. And guess what? He told me people in his lunchroom were doing that. So it makes me so happy. <laughs> it makes me so happy that people can feel at home in my book. And I think that we need young people coming from diverse communities and diverse classes, diverse uh, sexualities to be writing so that those people who have never seen themselves in the book can say, hey, I felt that too. Hey, that's my story. And I, I'm hoping that um, there'll be whole generations of writers writing these stories. I, I'm witnessing a lot of younger writers coming up. Uh, many of them have joined my writer's workshop that we formed, Macondo, the Macondo Writer's Workshop, which I invite everybody to you know, Google and look and see what the requirements are. Because we need to tell our own stories, even if it's on page or on film or on podcast or through songs. We have to tell our own stories. You look what's happening right now, the whole explosion of like um, black Americans not knowing their history and saying, what, I didn't know what Juneteenth was, or Latinos not knowing their history, not knowing that our literature has been here since before the world was around, that we have roots here in the Americas, that we have half literature and our literature was so dangerous it was burned. It was burned by the conquistadores and the, the, the friars and the priests. So, you know, so much of our past has been destroyed. But we have a beautiful heritage, beautiful stories. And we need to be looking for those books so that we can recover our past and recover the stories that weren't taught to us. And they will empower us to go forward and be storytellers in whatever genre we want, we choose. Yeah, on the on the I, I kinda like the way you put the idea of our history kind of being burnt, right, up to a point, right? And I feel like for me, when I started to really come to terms with that, it really didn't happen until college because that was my first time being around non black and Latino people, like on a larger scale, because all my schools were just black and Latino. And it really does. I mean, and me and me and Nelson kind of talked about this in the first episode, kind of how when we inherit histories, they're typically histories of demise, right? Like, even if it's not on a grander scale, like, you know, the Spaniards went into Puerto Rico and then this, this and this happened, right? And now dinos don't exist except for, you know, maybe 13% of a bloodline, if you're fortunate. But even on the scale of... Um, you know, your parents constantly, when you're asking them, you know, like I remember, at least for me, when I would interact with friends, you know, whose parents maybe worked in like a city office or things like that, um, like nothing extremely glamorous. But whenever I'd ask my mom, like what things she was into and what things she wanted to do, she always talked about how she was really in the track and field uh, when she lived in New York and how she was actually supposed to compete in this major race. But then, you know, the card sort of just didn't align. Then she wound up moving to Chicago. And then that was that. Like, it was just a history of struggle and poverty and abuse. And when you only hear that history of struggle, of struggle, poverty and abuse, you convince yourself. I think that's what festers that and really instills that insecurity. It's like, you know, why am I going to try to do this thing when everyone I know has tried to do this thing? And we're just going to end up in this place. And then... 
you know, you kind of realize by, at least for me, like one big thing um, that stood out for me was like the film Moonlight. When I watched it, like just really, it, it didn't pull back any strings, but I really showcased like those deep rooted insecurities that, I mean, comes with, I mean, let alone being a boy in the inner city, but being a homosexual boy in the inner city, which you can't showcase that. For me, I just immediately connected to the fact that like, I love to read and I love to draw and I love to write, but I couldn't do that in my neighborhoods, right? Just like things like that, that really have such a large impact, but then it kind of makes you sad to realize it's like, this is the first thing in the last 250 or so years of our country's history that has actually made that impact when we know we've heard these stories all the time. And yeah, that's, I don't, I think that's why for me, um, literature just has like such, I mean, literature and music um, has like such a dear spot in my heart because like people don't really pull those strings, you know, they don't hold anything back. And yeah, I feel like when hopefully, whenever we do get to a point when, you know, there are more, for instance, Latinx men in universities teaching because they're grossly underrepresented and they're just more Latinx authors in general, I feel like those securities are going to start to actually, you know, come to fruition. Like we're actually going to feel confident to, you know, like in my case, not sit on all this writing because I'm afraid it won't be accepted. So I just don't send it out. It's like, you know, so many rejections come. It's like, why, why would I do that to myself? You know, I'm already rejected in all these realms. Like, why would I actually kind of stimulate my own form of that? And kind of, I guess, a segue, uh, our podcast focuses very heavily on like the concept of belonging, um, which naturally you've gotten from listening even to the first episode. And I wonder if you could offer some advice to listeners, to writers, um, artists, I mean, just people of color, marginalized people in general about any struggles you've had with belonging, because it's very prominent in the book. And I also read your memoir, House of My Own, very prominent there. And sort of how you navigate that when it really pulls you down into those depths that sometimes feel like you might never make it out of. You know, that's such a cool question. Thank you for asking, because listening to your story and, um, you know, listening to your podcast before I thought about, you know, how lucky it was that I was born in 1954. You know, right the year before, that is, you know, we had major things happening in the civil rights movement. Just be, everything was just kind of fomenting and beginning. And I have always said how grateful I am to uh, the civil rights movement, the African-American community, because they, they opened the doors for me to have an education. And for other people, other people from the barrio and from poor communities, from poor people to get in, there, there was, there would be, I wouldn't be talking to you today. We hadn't had the civil rights movement that allowed for, by the time I was 18, there were scholarships available, there were grants available, there was an opportunity available for me to get an education. My mom, she wanted to be an artist. You know, my mom, she could sing like a, an opera, opera. She could sing an opera. She could open her mouth and this beautiful sound would come out and she would imitate the records that she took out of the library. She could draw. She's a very smart woman, and she read all our college textbooks and was the most well-read person in our community. We talked to you about uh, economics. You know, she, she loved Noam Chomsky. I don't read Noam Chomsky. She was brilliant. And, you know, but she didn't have an education. And I feel as if I was just born at the right time 
when all of the uh, civil rights movements, uh, people rose up and, and demanded rights for uh, African-American and we wrote in on that open door. I always give gratitude for their struggle helped me to get an education. And of course, I didn't learn anything about the uh, movement that was happening while I was living. I learned after I left Iowa. I remember I was at the student union and I saw uh, autobiography of Malcolm X, that documentary. And it was just, you know, on my own volition that I saw it, not because I was required or it was not part of my education. It was just lucky that I was there and I saw it. Then I read the book. Then I taught the book. Uh, in the barrio to my young uh, high school students. Uh, and it made a big impact on me because I thought, wow, here's this guy, here's his struggle. And it uh, was identical to struggle of many of people I knew, even though it wasn't specifically about Latinos, but it was a, a story about a person of color and all of his frustration and his anger and his going into movements of uh, believing violence was the uh, way to change reality and then coming all the way to the end to his spirituality and his seeing coalitions with people of all colors that was an amazing thing and oh uh, you know when I was growing up when I would ask my mother you know what's going on why are this why are we going home from school early what are these riots that are going on you know my mother would say oh that's Dr. King he's a he's a troublemaker and you know the way you got the news, it looked like he was a troublemaker. You didn't understand the backstory. And later on, my mother would, of course, know everything that was going on. I'm talking about sixty, the sixty-eight riots in Chicago. Uh, we had to learn things on our own. And I think if we'd had podcasts or if we got an education, you know, uh, books where we had been taught. Uh, the struggles of our black colleagues and brothers and sisters that, you know, we would have benefited and have been empowered too. But I think that's coming now. Sometimes it doesn't happen uh, at once. It happens uh, finally. And I think that one of the great things about what's happening now is the demonstrations are showing coalitions of Asian people who have suddenly been the target of discrimination thanks to the COVID, uh, Latinos, uh, poor people, white people, you know, there's been all kind of coalition like you've never seen, I've never seen in my lifetime. It's amazing. And I think that uh, it's not just the police and the, and the jails, but it's, it's going to be a revolution of how we look at our stories that are told. It's going to be, um, I feel very hopeful and excited, excited about it. And I feel like this podcast is part of that revolution. You know, I, I think people feel frightened about COVID, but it's allowing us time to uh, think and to create. And I think creation is what's missing sometimes when people get angry. You know, they just want to destroy things, but we don't think, how are we going to replace this with something that's just? So maybe it's not a coincidence that we're having this uh, retreat time of sanctuary in which we're able to think and create. That's how I see it as a kind of spiritual sanctuary, a time of great transformation. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I got ideas like bring down those statues of conquistadores and, and, and confederates and, and violence and might. And why don't we burn them down and we can make like beautiful wind chimes or 
peaceful art for Unity Park. It was a, you know, let the community <laughs> take in a monkey bars. You know, things for the kids. Don't throw it in the river. That, that's that <laughs> cost too much. And I, I know that that metal costs too much. I want to recycle. So, you know, there, there's, there's rage. And I got angry. I have to tell you the story that house grew from rage. But fortunately, I didn't write it and publish it when I was angry. And this is the important lesson. House grew from a moment when I was in Iowa in a writing program, and we were talking about houses, and we'd never discussed class in all my years of education. Here I was in graduate school. We never discussed class. And we were reading um, Isaac Denison's Out of Africa and Vladimir Nabokov's Speak Memory and Gaston Bachelard's Poetics of Space. And I have to tell you, the first two books, you know, yeah, okay. But the third one really upset me because uh, as much as I liked the writing, I couldn't always identify, you know, what the problem was. And I thought the problem was me, that I wasn't smart enough to understand these books. And what happened to me in that moment, uh, as always, I was quiet. I didn't speak in the class. I just listened because I thought everybody else was smarter than me. And it suddenly occurred to me that when we were talking about houses in these three books, and when my classmates were talking about their house, I knew what kind of houses they meant. But I looked around and I realized, okay, he, he has a house and she has a house and he has this kind of house. And she talked about her parents' apartment in Rome. And then I came to me and I thought, oh, I don't have a house. I don't have a house. And I remember feeling like the temperature in my face changed. I just felt like running out of there, screaming, I don't have a house. Well, of course I had a house, but I didn't have their house. I didn't have the house. I didn't have the house that we see in books and in movies and in magazines. And I felt ashamed. And suddenly I realized that shame that I'd been carrying this whole time I'd been out in the white world was that I lived in a neighborhood that I would be ashamed to take them to, that I couldn't date someone from outside my community and bring them in because I just feel ashamed. And I also felt like, you know, whoa, you know, they, they have no idea about my life. And I remember wanting to quit. And so I was just so in a funk for all weekend and thinking, why did I think I could, could be here? I should have taken that job at Wells and been a teacher. They offered me a job after student teaching there. Why did I pass that up? And then something clicked. And this is where, this is the great moment of transformation. Rage is such a powerful emotion. But unfortunately, a lot of us in our community were not taught what to do with that rage. And that rage, we use it against ourselves. You know, we drink, we take drugs, we mean to everybody else. We fight, and it's all this rage and just uh, roiling inside your heart. And you don't know to go to a therapist. You know, you don't know to go speak to someone about it. You know, that's not part of our culture. We don't know that uh, we're having, we have an illness in our heart. And for me, that moment of being so uh, depressed turned to rage because the opposite side of depression is rage. And I could have quit and said, I know, I'll show these classmates of mine, I'm going to quit. But then I thought, wait a second, that's shooting myself in the foot. I got to do something positive, not, not quit. 
And that's when I thought, okay, I'm going to write the book that was not given to me when I was getting educated. I'm going to write the book that should be in the library. And that's what I did. I didn't tell anyone. I was just kind of like this little quiet mouse. And I would uh, write things that were the opposite of my classmates. You know, I, I purposely would write something just, just to show them, okay, you're going to write about a gazebo. I'm going to write about a back porch. You're going to write about a swan. I'm going to write about a rat. You know, I was reacting to my classmates but in a very quiet way. And uh, I'm so glad I didn't begin and finish house when I was angry because it would, it would not exist now. It would just, you know, be ramped. But what we have to do with that rage is compost it, compost it, compost it, compost it, let it all out, compost it until it transforms into uh, a, something beautiful. And that happened to me after working in, with my kids in the high school. I started uh, admiring them, collecting their stories, including it in my autobiographical neighborhood, making composites of people I remembered from my childhood with my students and weaving and making characters out of two or three people. And, you know, I didn't know what was going to come from it, but it, I know looking at it now that I did it with love. It didn't begin with love. It began with rage, but it ended with love. And that's why it still uh, exists. I truly believe that. And that's why it's taking me to all this marvelous places, the journey called my life that brings me here with both of you today. Well, that's um, a great way to put it. I was, I don't know what I was expecting, but I really, I like that. So I wanted. And it's a lesson for us right now when people are angry and don't know what to do. You know, I'm Buddhist and I learned so much from uh, following Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese uh, monk who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Dr. Martin Luther King. And I recommend everybody who's angry, read his work. Uh, you know, he uh, followed the original Buddha, who of course Gandhi followed, who again, Nelson Mandela and Cesar Chavez, all these great people are following the wisdom of Buddhism. You don't have to be Buddhist to read Buddhism. You, know, you, know, you, you don't have to, it's just, uh, it's not a religion. It's uh, a way of dealing with uh, and transforming uh, our rage and our frustration and so that we can manage it and survive it and illuminate others in a positive light. So I'm, I'm always going to say, read Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Being Peace uh, Changed My Life. It was a book that, you know, I was used to uh, fighting by, with my tongue, you know, tossing Molotovs with my tongue. I was very good at you know, killing people with my words. And I suddenly realized, you know, that makes me feel all smart. And, you know, but it's all ego. What is ego? It's not going to make long-term change. And so I learned from um, Thich Nhat Hanh's books and Being Peace, especially was the first one, of how much more powerful you have to be to hold on to your rage instead of just reacting and using that rage to create something positive. That's how House was born. And I wasn't even Buddhist then. I was just, when I was Quintla, I, I was just 22 years old. And I don't know how I got so smart. I really think I have garden angels or spirits taking care of me. For the listeners, um, this whole conversation, that we, this whole snippet we just had here, um, we, 
starting with how Randy introduced us um, in episode one, we talked about um, the what ifs uh, I could have been story. You said that we're even writing a song called, you know, I, a could have been story for one of the songs for House on Monco Street, the opera that I'm working on right now with Derek Barmel, who loved your podcast. And we, we have a song about that. The people in the neighborhood have said, I could have, you know, I could have done this. And yeah, it's, it's so great that we're both on the same page. Yeah, that that is awesome. The could have been story. Everyone has one. Um, everyone's parents had one. Um, it's just one of those things that everyone has. And we talk about how we need to, and it's our responsibility. Let's start by saying to all, all the all the listeners here, it's our responsibility to take control of our could have been story, to rewrite that and to say who we're gonna be. And when we tell that story later on in life, who we became, right? Um, that is something that I do think uh, is, again, as a listener, that is your responsibility to do for yourself. Because one thing I, I am certain of, um, again, for those of you who are just tuning in now, Randy and I are brothers. We grew up same parents, same house, same schools, elementary, high school, the whole thing, same shit. Randy went to college. I joined the military. I was dabbling in real estate, construction, sports, all kinds of shit. I went out to get my own knowledge um, that was different than the what they would call the educational track. But obviously, we both went and got educated. One thing I'll say from certain is no one's going to throw that information at you. Let's just be honest, guys. That's not a resource that no one's going to come to the neighborhood and be like, all right, guys, let's talk about investing in real estate. Let's talk about and no one's going to tell you that shit. Just like how no one came and plucked Randy out of school and just threw his ass in college. He had to work his ass off of school and apply. So here to tell you guys, if you guys are going to take control of your could have been story, you guys have to go and look for those opportunities and make them because we all know they're not there. And we grew up hearing how we'll never get that kind of opportunity. Uh, They won't look out for you that way. No one's going to show you that. You're right. No one's going to just fall into your lap and just give you that sort of knowledge, guys. But you do have the capability, everyone does, to do it yourself. Especially now that the internet, so much information is available to people. Uh, you know, I, I'm always posting on my Instagram and on my website books that changed my life, including the ones I've mentioned, uh, books that uh, inform me, books that change my ideas about who I am as a brown person in the Americas. I'm always posting those books. And if books aren't your route, if that is not your prescription, there are podcasts, there are, there, there are and I'm, one thing I want to also mention is uh, sometimes in our community, we can't deal with our demons. We're not strong enough to do it alone, or we don't know how. Uh, there are people out there, if we had grown up, for example, saying another time we would have the brujas or the curanderos, and, and our societies now, as, as working-class people, we're ashamed sometimes when we have those deep depressions that we don't come out of. And you know, the, there are people now that can help us and there are means to uh, getting that help uh, even if you have no money and they're called therapists and you know I've gone through my deep dark nights of the soul and been very suicidal so I want to recommend that people also seek out uh, therapists analysts people that deal with mental health 
uh, it's even within reach, if you, especially if you are poor, there are means. Um, that's something we don't talk about, about our mental health and our community. Um, it's something that I deal with in my life and I've been very vocal about it, but I haven't written about it. That's in my next book of essays, but I do, do want to put that out there because it's not just uh, information about investments, but it's also about health and mental health, uh, art as transforming our rage and uh, someone to be there to listen to us, to guide us. There, there are more resources than we realize, especially in the day of the internet. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, mental health because that's, I mean, for me as, I mean, a kid, even going all the way through college, like I didn't actually speak to my first therapist until it was a campus therapist. So, I mean, every college should have them theoretically, Um, but it's a free resource, right? It comes included with tuition, but like in my case, I got, um, I was Medicaid in order to get an outside therapist, the school therapist, you know, you see them once every three, four five weeks, depending um how much demand there is like i always i always always remember like as a kid like our mom never talked about the things that were troubling her we knew there was so much troubling her because like in a lot of ways we were experiencing alongside her but it just wasn't something we talked about because if you talk about it then that means you're exhibiting that weakness right and we can't be weak we're already on the brink of crumbling of falling off the edge like we have to maintain our composure and for me like i i've also had periods where I was suicidal and just fell into very deep bouts of depression. Like even in school, I just completely like bomb a semester because I just could not handle it. But, and I was afraid to talk about it. Because you're afraid if you talk about it, then you're crazy. People yeah. are going to find out you're crazy, right? Yeah. And it's, yeah, they like, you know, cause now it's exposed. It's like, you know, this yeah. is in my head the entire time, but it's, it's like it's like once you write something on a page and say that page gets published, now it's out into the world. It's no longer your imagination. You know, it's it's a part of your being, right? And I I remember for me, like what really pushed me into uh, accepting that I really needed therapy was one after bombing the first semester of my sophomore year. It's like worst academic semester of my life. Or I found myself like for me, the only possessions I really have are books. That's that's all I hold on to. I remember I, and I know Malik remembers this, like when I was a kid, when I get upset, I would hit myself because whenever people in my life were upset with me, they would hit me. And so that was the only way I knew how to kind of, in my mind, to calm myself down, right? To really reel things in. And it just got to a point where I remember one time, like I was just extremely upset with this thing I'd written. Like no one had seen it, but to me, it just wasn't really worthwhile. And I punched myself. And then I just sat there wondering, like, why is that your immediate response? Like, why is it your immediate response to break yourself down? For me, like having gone through all those things as a kid and somehow just, you know, stumbling into a college education, you know, study abroad opportunities, things like that, like that wasn't enough. Like I never learned how to appreciate accomplishments. And once I found my therapist in the town, his name was Chris. And he was a white guy, but he grew up poor. He grew up in a farm family. And he went to the University of Iowa, eventually got his degree in um, therapy. And we related on so many different planes. So I feel like on top of allowing me to actually just voice these things and making me feel comfortable enough to voice those things, I began to realize that a lot of those 
sort of like biases I have of people. Like we always assume white people were richer, right? Or we assume they were better off. Like there's so many people that, I mean, regardless of race, orientation, age, like they go through the exact same things that we go through all the time. But growing up in our communities, we're convinced that, you know, we're not allowed to talk about it or that will exhibit softness. And the media convinces us, a lot of films we watch, um, movies, TV shows, news, like it convinces us that like we're fated for this thing. But once you really start to peel back those layers, like you begin to realize that it doesn't have to be this way. Like you can walk into this space and it's going, I mean, there were moments when I just walked out on Chris, I was like, dude, fuck this, I can't do it. And then, you know, I come back next week and then we just start again. You know, it built up that confidence in me that I could address these things. And it doesn't make me weaker in any way. It, you know, it makes us stronger in that, like right. we're able to live with the pain, but now we're transforming that pain. Well, transforming it and not letting us transform us. What I always say is if you don't take care of your demons, your demons will take care of you. Well, it's very important that you recognize your demons and that you, if you can't transform it yourself, sometimes writing a poem, writing a novel is not going to help me with my demons. I've had to go from finishing a, a book and going right into therapy because I, I needed a bruja. I needed a modern day bruja to cleanse me and help me. And, and I know now what to do. I don't get into those places, those suicidal places anymore, because I already know how to ask for help and how to transform my depression into illumination. And that's something that, you know, I was talking about with a friend of mine who's a Puerto Rican in Chicago. She's a therapist. And she said, I was, you know, I had a, a colleague, a writer who is in depression right now. And I was saying, aren't there any books about Latinos and depression? There's like nothing out there. So that's going to invite you young people, go to school, write these books, be our therapist. There are so few of us and the need is so great in our community because we're all trying to, uh, like you said, you know, deal with uh, our family is sometimes on the brink. They're trying to hold it together because they don't want us to be afraid. And there's such a great need right now for people of color to be therapists, people of color to be writing about depression and so that uh, you could save someone else's life. You could save someone else's life by telling your story. We need to be making our own films and uh, our stories are so valuable and so urgently needed right now. So I'm going to tell young people, uh, you know, one of the steps is, you know, think about coming to knock on the writer's workshop or another writer workshop of color. But how do you get there? Well, first you start writing, you know, and you start creating. And then you find someone else who you could share it with, um, perhaps virtually during this time of pandemic, and you exchange each other's work. We talk about each other's writing. That's how I used to do it in Chicago. We used to go to some cafe where we could buy, you know, one cup of coffee and stay there for two hours and exchange work and read each other's writing. And then eventually, you know, you don't find a people of colors workshop. Well, guess what? You create one. You can do it virtually. I used to do it in my living room back in the day. And then you graduate to a, a place where you know what the other people are going to say about your writing. And you have to go looking for a professional writer. People always write to me, will you look at my work? No, I'm sorry, I cannot look at your work because if I look at your work, I won't be able to write my book, even a page today after I talk to you. But I can tell you that there are other writers right now who are teaching. You can look at magazines like Poets and Writers. You could look at your library. You could create workshops. 
you have to be very innovative. The National Museum of Mexican Art, if you went up to them and said, hey, we want to do a writing workshop, I guess what, I, I bet you they would help you. So there's a lot of institutions, especially right now, that are feeling like, hmm, we're not doing enough for the people of color, like maybe Poetry Foundation, hint, hint. You know, there are a lot of places out there that you could approach if you initiate it and start yourself or you do it virtually under the auspices of these organizations. So it doesn't have to be a university workshop. Sometimes, you know, you, you build up to that, but it's like anything. If you wanna be in the Olympics, you cannot do it by yourself. You gotta start somewhere where you train. Maybe you start training with uh, an athlete in the community and he leads you to his teacher. He leads you to his coach and like that, it's a step. And so that I want to throw that out there for people are wondering, how do you become a writer? It's poco a poco, but you have to be very driven to do it. You have to have a lot of tenacity and passion to do it because you may not have to give up your day job. You may not be able to give up your day job. First thing I always ask is, will you write even if you make no money? If you're saying, mm, no, I want to, well, no, then open a car wash. Don't think about becoming a writer. Will you write even if you can't afford to have children? Will you write even if you may not be able to successfully keep a partner? Will you keep writing? And that's the, the difference between the wannabe writers and the real writers. Even if you don't get published in your lifetime, look at Emily Dickinson. You know, are you going to continue to write? Because writing is what keeps you healthy, mentally healthy. And you need the writing to transform your emotions into light. Those are the real writers. All right, guys. Now you guys can ask yourselves the question, are you guys real writers or not? Really think about that one. Um, well, that's a lot to touch base on, but I'm glad you guys uh, mentioned uh, therapy. For starters, I myself, I do see a therapist. However, I, I am glad you mentioned it because it isn't something I mentioned, but it's also just something I don't actually think about. Because whenever I'm talking to, for example, lots of my friends that are still, you know, in the same rut we talk about throughout the, the episodes of Homies of Lit, and we're never really thinking about therapy. We're usually just talking about like, you know, you got to get out of here or, you know, just stop doing what you're doing. Because let's be honest, there ain't doing nothing, no good shit. It, it's it's the circle out there, you know? And um, I wanted to, for the listeners, I really wanted to touch point on what I think is probably the most important uh, piece we got that from me that resonated the most is when she says um, about the rage. I'm thinking about how this podcast pretty much came to be. And I remember back in 2015, February, 2015, um, I was walking home one day and I seen my friends named uh, George, just a regular day talking, you know, it was late, like 11 o'clock at night. Uh, just a simple exchange. You know, he was drinking a bit or whatever. And he's like, oh, I'm headed home. He lived on that block. So I'm like, all right, take your ass home. I'm out of here. Uh, the following day, uh, I, I had found out that he, um, he actually got killed right after that. I remember hearing the shots, but you know, if you guys are from, from the hood, you know, you stop and think, okay, those came from that direction. We're on this side. If someone else will find out what happened and who it was tomorrow. So I go to school. Um, again, I was in high school guys. I'm, I'm 22 just so you guys know. So 2015, I was in high school so i go to school and i hadn't even known that it was him yet they were like damn bro man man nelson i'm sorry bro and i'm like fuck these guys talking about my like, hey, man so you know who, who got smoked yesterday and it's something that was george and it was like this whole breakdown and it happened pretty much right after i had seen him and all this stuff and i remember i was so angry i i mind you i had gone to dozens and i'm not exaggerating when i say dozens of funerals before that already 
I was just extremely angry about that one. Obviously, you start to think, well, I was with him. I probably should have just made sure he went home, all this shit, right? And then what proceeded to happen after that was just more and more deaths. And at that point, I just got really tired. And I just thought, you know, we're not doing anything to solve this situation because we're the ones out here doing this shit. And so I've pretty much been angry for about five years now. <laughs> um, and I just get angry about it. More and more things happen. And it was starting festering. And that's when I started when I left. And I wanted to try to figure out how I could bring something back that isn't going to contribute to us nonsensically just killing ourselves. And listen, and, and to bring a point, I woke up this morning and I uh, found out that uh, a friend of mine, not, um, we kind of chat. I don't really talk to too many people. I hang out with them from that, from the neighborhood anymore. Just, you know, I have kids now I'm married. Um, so I try to avoid that mess. But anyway, a uh, friend of mine, Brandon, uh, he was killed yesterday in Logan square. I don't know if you've seen the article, Randy. Um, so, yeah. So he was killed. Um, yesterday, I actually found out obviously recently because it just happened last night. And so I could still feel that, that rage again, festering. And I'm just thinking about all my friends who are obviously going to make some bad decisions over this next week. Um, and I really think that, um, this is the whole point of homies lit is really to shine a light on how we could express ourselves and, and use that, like you said, rage and, and do put the word out there in a more positive light because killing someone's not going to bring anyone back. And quite frankly, this happens all the time. And which is why uh, it's sad to say I'm not amazed or, or blown away at the fact that he was shot and killed yesterday. It just, that's just what happens. It's a constant thing. And I just think that is exactly why um, we need to find more ways to uh, make ourselves be heard because we're taking that rage and we're just throwing it at people. And all we're doing is just making more rage in the world. And the thing is, is that, Exactly. And, and, you know, and the models we have for what to do with our anger are about more rage. Yeah. Every movie yeah. and story we get look at on television has something exploding or someone kicking someone's butt, you know, just over and over. And I just, I can't even watch any movies that have any violence, which is why I stay away from lots of films. But um, have you ever thought of inviting uh, Luis Rodriguez to come and be on your show? I, I don't know, Randy, if you know who that is, but I definitely do not. I don't, I'd have to know what books he's written. But I don't. Rodriguez is from Chicago and, and, and Los Angeles, and he writes a lot about the guys and the gangs and rage and anger. And uh, his, his books, he has a new book out, which I haven't read yet because it's sitting waiting for me in my mailbox in Texas, and I'm here stuck in the other <laughs> side of the border. But uh, Luis Rodriguez is, is such a wise person about dealing with rage and male rape, especially. So I wanted to put that seed out there. Um, he's a great poet. I love his writing. He lived in Chicago. And so he has that in common with you both. Uh, but check out his new book and uh, his all of his books. I, I just think, I think he's just one of the wisest people I know. And I'd love to share him with your listeners. Definitely. We'll, um, one, we'll look those up guys and we'll leave them and, uh, um, we'll leave resources for you guys to find it. Um, and we'll definitely touch base with you guys and let you guys know what we thought about it personally. Yeah. Um, and I want to also uh, recommend Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, Indigenous uh, People's History of the United States as a book that was, it really changed my mind about you know uh u.s history uh if you check out that book it'll tell you uh, a lot about the indigenous communities in the caribbean and different parts of the united states and they give you a very different story about uh, the united states and about who we are as uh, 
uh, Latinos with uh, indigenous roots. Um, it's a great book. I, I give it to people all the time. It's one of my favorite ones. I go back to it. So I want to put that out there. I'm always uh, talking about books or photographing the covers of books that I'm reading or books that I'm rereading on my Instagram. So if people want to follow me there or look on my website, either place, uh, there's so many books that uh, I would love to share. Um, Edwige Dondekot's books, you know, she's a Haitian American writer. And uh, I hope you invite her to be on your show one day. She's so great. And, you know, she is just a brilliant woman and thinker. Uh, I have lots of friends who would beg to be on this show. So please use my directory and my connections, and I will tell them uh, what a great experience this is. Because we don't have those venues. You've done something very positive with your rage. I want to say to both of you, uh, you've created this podcast. Maybe inadvertently, maybe it wasn't a, a conscious mind that you were creating it, but thanks to the the uh, uh, pandemic and the time that you have right now, you've used this time wisely to do something beautiful, to share your own experiences with other people. And I, I want to thank you for that. Yeah. So just a touch on kind of like the transformation of rage into positive. Um, at least for me, fortunately, you know, um, I mean, we've talked about this in the podcast, I think, especially in the second episode on The Outsiders. Um, that's a great example of male rage, this kind of run amok and how it can really just, I mean, just ruin lives entirely. Even if you're not physically losing your life, you can spiritually lose it, I believe. Yeah. So I never really had, like, there were people around me, at least, you know, especially in high school, even in college that had passed through the gun violence or whatever reasons. But for me, the... The thing that's always affected me most is, again, like as a writer, I'm looking at the words, right? I'd always read these articles, especially like Chicago Tribune. Uh, sometimes I found out about a friend dying in high school through the Red Eye, which is a free local paper, um, which is a terrible way to learn about something like that. And it's a similar situation, right? Like you hear the shots, but you're like, you know, like we've heard this a million times, but it's not actually going to happen to one of us. Like, you know, we've been fortunate. And I have like lately really proactively thought about like how can i actually channel this right like how like there's got to be a way to transform this into something positive because it's not it's like you know it's just it's going to live there forever it's like anything else right unless you write about it talk about it and get it out into the world you're never actually going to fully just remove it um from yourself i guess in that negative light that's why when you know, when Malik or Nelson, when he approached me with the idea of the podcast, I mean, literally right at the beginning of the conversation, I was like, yeah, that shit sounds dope, you know, let's do it. And then same day, put together a book list, you know, um, chop this shit up about it. But I remember, so immediately after I met Sandra, I decided I was talking to my professor, Marcella, who's from Chile. And I believe we say that University of Iowa, I can't recall. But anyway, we're talking and I was considering applying for a Fulbright to go to Spain. And I remember, you know, she was naturally pushing it. She was a Spanish professor and an ethnic studies professor. And she just, she actually handed me all your books one day. And she's like, she's coming in two weeks. You need to read these. And so I read them. I remember when I was writing the application for that, the, the Fulbright advisor on campus, when he was reading it, you know, I was going into my backstory because I feel like for me, like that just dictates so much of who I am. And he literally told me verbatim, he's like, you need to rewrite this because this isn't going to get you a Fulbright. Like they don't really, 
I mean, to use different words, they don't really give a shit about these stories. You know, for like a solid four days, I was like, you know, like, you know, maybe he's right. And it was, you know, it was really demoralizing. And I just decided I wasn't going to apply for it. And then I wound up reading some sections of, and I've mentioned this when I met you, I read it, I ended up reading some sections of Loose Woman. And I just found them to be incredibly empowering. I remember then feeling like, like one thing that always stuck with me is that friend who I found out, uh, that childhood friend who died uh, through that newspaper. And I just centered my rage on that. So my entire personal statement was about him and about the idea of lost opportunity, how when you're taking a life, you're not just taking that person away, like you're displacing them physically from the world and you're displacing them from all these opportunities and all the people they could have enlightened. I, that's something I proactively think about and that I, I guess to close up my comments that I really appreciate about your writing, Sandra, is that like there's clearly an intent to not just, because I mean, there are plenty of writers who write just for financial gain and, you know, some do well with it, but I feel like there's clearly an intent to not just tell a story, but to tell a story that has a ripple effect and that can then influence other people to tell their stories, whether similar stories or different stories, but clearly, right, there's a connecting factor. And I feel like, again, in high school, I didn't truly appreciate that because I was so lost in that anger and that despair. But when I finally got reintroduced to your books, I felt like it kind of provided a new light that I realized, or maybe it just, you know, kind of re-screwed on the bulb for me that was sort of loosening and falling. So yeah, I'll just wrap up my statements with that. One thing, um, when our show is done, I want to talk to you a little bit about your writing, but one of the things that I like to tell writers or, or teachers or whatever your job is or business people, whatever your field is, you can use this, but I learned this from uh, my own experiences um, of feeling uh, angry at Iowa and realizing I didn't have a house. So once I started writing and, and uh, composting that anger, uh, I would think about, well, what do I know that no one in this workshop knows? So that's something you have to ask yourself. What do I know that no one else in my field, whatever it is, what, what do I know that no other, whatever, if you're in school or whatever your job is, think about what do you know? 10 things that you know that no one else knows. It's actually more than 10, but just you can think, write down 10. Okay, what 10 things do you know that your brother doesn't know? What 10 things have you seen or witnessed? What are 10 things that you wish you could forget? What 10 things do you know that other Latino men do not know? What do you know that other Latino men who are whatever your sexuality is, what do you know that they don't know? Okay, what, do you, what have you lived that maybe no one else in your barrio, your city, your state, your profession, you can come, keep coming on and splitting hair. What are the 10 things you know that no one can tell you you're wrong? that you've lived. The most important is like the 10 things you wish you could forget. That's the most. And then write from that place. And if I gave everybody the assignment, okay, I want you to write about love. Everybody says, oh, what a boring subject that is. But if everybody wrote it from their 10 times 10, it would be the first time that the universe would ever see your story. So when you were writing your, your letter for the Fulbright, you needed to find your 10 times 10 so that you could you know, come at it at a place that no one else could come at it. 
And I found that that works for whatever your profession is. If you think about your 10 times 10, that's your gift. That's your perspective that you bring to the universe that no one else can give. And we're not taught to draw that forth. You know, we're taught that, okay, this is how you have to sound when you're a writer. But yeah. through my rage, I was able to find my 10 times 10. It you know, was a circuitous route. It took a couple of years, but I found it through House on Mongo Street. And I want to share that. I share it with all my writing students. And, but it's for anybody, even if you're not a writer. I give it to you for free. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, just like quick 15 second soundbite. Um, I do appreciate that because for me, like something I always struggle with, especially in writing workshops where a lot of students aren't used to reading language that sounds like mine or vernacular English, they like to call it, um, like kind of that struggle of voice, right? And I feel like one of the first times my voice actually shone through was that essay because I just sort of allowed myself to tap into all those things. So I just wanted to, yeah. Yeah, I always tell people too that are beginning writers, think about what you wear to go to sleep. You don't have to tell me what it is, just visualize what you wear to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And think of one person who could see you wearing that. And I want you to talk to that one person, write your piece like if you're talking it out loud. Hey, you know, no, that's not how it was. Put that all in too. And write your piece in your pajama voice. That's your real voice. That's your true voice. Now, that doesn't mean that you can use that voice for everything. You know, you're not going to show up in your pajamas for your job application, your Fulbright, you know, but it, it's your first draft. And, you know, a lot of times we have not been allowed to write from that place or we're thinking about, oh, my God, what is the boss going to say when he reads my applicant or what is the reviewer of this grant going to say or what are my classmates going to think about me you cannot write if you're thinking about getting on what are they going to say you have to pretend that what you have to say is so dangerous you cannot publish it in your lifetime that's how you got to go into every piece of writing like it's so out there you can't publish it in your lifetime so you don't even think about the reader and then true writing will come, the things that are in your heart, not your head. So you write your first draft from your heart, but you revise with your head later on. And you don't want to censor yourself. So that's first draft in your pajama voice, and you write it as if you're not going to show it to anyone in your lifetime. And by the way, you don't have to show it to anyone in your lifetime. It's more important that you write. Publishing is something else. That's another business. All right, guys, it's that time we're all not looking forward to. We're wrapping it up, guys, and just want to give a good power run through of everything that I think you guys should focus on, at least that's popped in my mind. Randy, you could jump in and clear this up at the end. All right, guys, <laughs> we're talking about rage. It's our responsibility, like I said. We have to change our could have been story. And we're, we're going to start with what we do with that rage. All right, guys, we, we have to channel that. And at the end, try to take that rage and remember what, what got us that rage and try to find a way to lessen that burden for other people, what, what we put out. All right, guys, if you guys are struggling, going through some things mentally, um, check out therapists. I know you guys were like, man, you know, I'm hurting for cash. Me personally, I'm not rich. I work up. I ain't making a shit ton of money, but there's 
there's therapists on a sliding scale. So it works based on what you're making. So check it out, guys. It will help you guys out. And I know, you know, it's hard to find someone to just let your guard down with. It, this is what the fuck they do, guys. That's their job. It's like a safe space there. So you could chop it up with them. They're, they're totally unbiased about that kind of shit, guys. Also, any resources or anything you guys heard throughout um, this podcast, Makondo, um, writers, uh, there's a link in the first episode uh, show notes. There's going to be a link in this one. If you guys want to follow Sandra, um, her Instagram is official Sandra Cisneros. That also will be in the show notes. Um, link to buy Mango Street and all the books mentioned in this podcast in the show notes, guys. You know what it is. You know where it is. Yeah, and if you can't buy it, you can ask your library to order a book for you. And I think with the with the uh, pandemic, uh, you may be able to get them to mail it to you or to pick it up without going inside. So just know a lot of the books are available at your library. Yeah, and also a lot of a lot of libraries are doing also like free ebook collections, which people aren't really made aware of. But if you go on the city websites or county websites, um, I know it's the case in Sonoma County in California. Um, if you have a library card within that city or within that county, um, then you can have unlimited access to ebook libraries. Wow, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's pretty dope. Yeah, when I found out, I was like, oh, damn, you didn't touch anything. <laughs> and that goes back to our point, guys. If you want it, you got to go out and get that shit, guys. You guys want something? You guys have to take that step for yourselves because people aren't going to throw nothing at you guys. You guys got to go out there and get it. And, you know, if you want your voice to be heard, you got to start by speaking, writing, doing, guys. That That's that's the point of all this. Think of these negative emotions like shame and rage and media, all of these dark emotions. These are demons, but they can fuel you. They, they can uh, light up a city or they can destroy a city. It's up to you how you transform that emotion to illumination. There you guys have it. Really um, let us know in the comments uh, on our Homies of Lit page on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you guys are hollering at us. Let us know how this impacted you. Let us know your insights, your thoughts, um, anything you guys have any questions about. Um, really just feel free to um, build that community up for us. We're here to talk and chop it up with anybody who has um, common stories and the exact opposite of what we're feeling. Because remember here at Homies and Lit, the, the main focus is that different isn't really different. Everybody can find a piece of themselves in these stories. You just got to be willing to, uh, to, you know, start that dialogue. So co-host Nelson Santiago. I'm your co-host Randy Santiago. I want to thank Sandra Cisneros again for speaking with us. Um, it's only our fourth episode, so this is an incredible honor. Um, and yeah, again, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Homies Elite. Um, feel free to communicate with us. Even if you have book recommendations, things that really sit out to you that you want us to read and talk about, by all means, send those to us and we will um, have those discussions, send us questions and we'll incorporate them into our conversations. Um, and of course, thank you, all of you who are listening. And Sandra, do you want to give us your final? Well, I just uh, want right. to say you guys um, restore my faith in humanity today. Or doing something so positive and brilliant and beautiful, and you don't even have any idea the light you're putting out in the universe with this podcast. You have no idea how wonderful this is, and how uh, what a great resource this will be for teachers, educators, and especially like uh, 
you were saying, Nelson, for people who like in school and are bored, you know, this is going to be just tremendous. So thank you both. Thank you. And guys, signing out. <laughs>